About a year and a half ago, I was looking for a job. I had just started my final year of seminary up in Chicago, and uh, my wife and I wanted to move our family down to Dallas, like all good Christians do. And uh, I, I, I needed a job for that to happen. So uh, what I, many, some of you have asked how I got connected with Parkway. I'll give you kind of the, the brief story here. Uh, I started cold calling, or in the 21st century, cold emailing. Uh, I just kind of wrote up a generic introductory email about who I am, what I'm about, kind of my education, my ministry experience, uh, what I'm hoping to do. Uh, I, uh, you know, the, the kind of the big picture things about me, and I, I drew a circle around the Dallas area uh, and uh, all the churches in there that seemed to fit some of my uh, major theological convictions about you know, the preaching of the Bible, the, the centrality of the gospel, Reformed theology, things like this, and, and just, just sent that same email to, I don't know, 50, 60 churches. I don't remember how many it was. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was, it was just my, my introductory way to say to these churches, here's who I am, and here's what you probably would like to know about me to get to know me, and here's, here's what I'd like to do. In that email, I did not put anything about how much I love my dog. I do love my dog very much. You've heard me talk about him. But I didn't put anything in there about him. I also did not mention how many hours of podcasts I've listened to, which go through a chapter-by-chapter analysis of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Hundreds of hours of Lord of the Rings podcasting. I did not put that in there, which is shocking, if you know me. I did not even mention the fact that I was once half of the largest two-man mascot in NCAA history. It's not bragging, it's just true. Those are all things, but I did not mention them in my email, this generic kind of introduction to who I am. Why? Well, the reason should be obvious. Those are not really relevant to uh, the reason I was coming to Dallas and what churches would want to know about me. A quick introduction like that, you, you only can say so much, so you need to kind of focus on the, the main things, the big picture uh, truths about me, the things you need to know that are especially relevant, that pertain to the reason that you're coming. Uh, and I share that because in our passage today, we, we get something like that about Jesus himself. A summary introduction. The, the main things, what's central to who he is and why he's here. Uh, it's not everything we could say about Jesus, but it does capture the big picture in a few words. If we, if we want to summarize the main things you must know about this Christ, who he is, what he has come to do, we could hardly do better than our passage today. And we'll, we'll see that from this quote that Matthew uses from Isaiah chapter 42. That's kind of the, the second half of our passage here. We'll spend most of our time there. But first, it's important to see how Matthew gets there. We need to see how he builds up to, Matt, to Isaiah 42 and in, in what he does when he's quoting it. So for the past few weeks, we've been in Matthew 12. Well, for the past, I don't know, year or whatever, we've been in Matthew but the past few weeks, we've been in Matthew chapter 12, uh, and this chapter has really focused on Jesus' conflict, his, uh, his disagreement, his, uh, his, yeah, his conflict with, with the Pharisees, with these religious leaders of 
the Jewish people. So, for example, his disciples were walking through a grain field on the Sabbath. They ate some grain, which is a big no-no, according to the Pharisees, and they got mad. Last week, Jared preached about Jesus healing a man with a withered hand in a synagogue on the Sabbath, also a big no-no. And the Pharisees got mad again. So our passage last week ended with this just epic line. Verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. How to destroy him. It's like Matthew is reaching for a word to capture how mad they are. He does not say they're they're making a plan to kill him. They want to destroy him. So when I was in high school, uh, one of my, maybe it was middle school, I don't remember because this is kind of childish, I think more middle school. Anyway, one of my friends discovered uh, the word defenestrate. Does anyone know what the word defenestrate means? Nobody? Okay, it means to, oh, we have someone in the back. I can't hear you from here. I'm partially deaf, sorry. It means to throw someone out a window. We have a verb that means to throw out a window. I don't know, I mean, someone needs to figure out the etymology. I don't know where that comes from, but there's a word which means to throw someone out a window. And when me and my friends learn this word, we use it all the time. Because it's like the ultimate smack talk. If we're like playing basketball and I say, I'm going to beat you, it's like, okay, that's lame. But I'm going to defenestrate you is like, there's something so shaming about it. It's like, it's like, oh, it's such good smack talk. So we use that word all of the time. Uh, and that's, that's what Matthew's doing here. He's saying Jesus, they don't, they don't want to just kill Jesus. They want to destroy him. They're angry. It captures the emotion of what they want to do. And it shows us a picture of how Jesus' opponents handle things. They're brutal. They're harsh. They're destructive. And that will give us a great contrast with the tender, humble picture of our Savior we get in the rest of this passage. So our first verse in our passage this morning picks up right there with their conspiracy in mind. Verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all. So Jesus knows what they're up to. He knows that they're after him, and he leaves. The reason for that is not because he's running away, because he's scared, uh, because the truth is eventually they will destroy him. They will get a hold of him, but not yet. He has things to do in the meantime. His time has not yet come. So he, he leaves, and it says, many followed him, and he healed them all. It's interesting. This is presumably still the Sabbath Uh, Still, these are people he's poaching from the synagogue after he's healed the man with a withered hand. They saw what Jesus can do, and they're like, I want him. Uh, And and the the Pharisees leave, and they're like, no, I I don't want him at all. There's two groups that leave this synagogue. One that is angry, angry and conspiring destruction, and one that is healed. Think about this. What if we had a physician today that had a 100% success rate? A doctor who just healed literally everyone who came to them. That would be headline news. It would be all over the billboards. It would be a Netflix special. There would be a Netflix special, so-and-so doctor, 100% success rate. Hey, you got a problem? Go to them. And yet, I, I love how Matthew, it's like, a, it's like a footnote 
in Jesus' life. It's not even the main focus of the passage. He healed them all. 100% success rate. It's like Matthew doesn't even blink. He's just, he's just so used to how these unbelievable, wonderful things that this Messiah is capable of. He healed them all. And then next, Jesus does something surprising. Verse 16. He ordered them not to make him known. He ordered them not to make him known. Okay, imagine Jesus had a, uh, a publicity coach. First century equivalent of whatever that would be. Someone to help him with his public image. Uh, if you read the Gospels, you quickly realize that person, probably around chapter 2, pulled out all of their hair because he is constantly doing things that, that uh, do not elevate his, his publicity, his public image, but actually uh, lower it, that, that takes him away from celebrity and puts him into obscurity. So uh, the two things he does when there's, uh, when there's people following him, one is he turns around and he starts talking about how difficult it's going to be. Like, are you really sure? I'm not sure that you know what you're getting yourself into if you follow me. It's going to be like dying daily. And then the other thing he does is what he does here. He silences the crowds. He says, don't tell people about me. Don't tell people about me. He, he orders them. Actually, the, the Greek word there is, is even stronger. Matthew says he ordered them. The Greek word is usually translated, he rebuked them. So there's a forcefulness to this. It's the same word uh, that uh, Matthew used when he talked about Jesus silencing the storm. He rebuked the storm. It's a powerful, a stern rebuke. Jesus is not just turning down the Netflix special. He is saying, do not say anything to anyone. Do not make me known. Which is surprising. It's, 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 it's not what we would expect. He's insisting on obscurity when celebrity is there for the taking. He could very easily become a celebrity, become the big hot new thing in first century Israel. And he's saying, no, that's not why I'm here. Why does he do these kind of things? Why does he insist on obscurity? We're going to find the answer in the quote that we are coming to. So just put a pin in that for now. Verse 17, Matthew explains, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now there's, there's several questions we need to uh, think through uh, from that verse. The, the first and probably most obvious question is, what does this refer to? It says this was to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. What, what, it, what is this? What are we talking about, Matthew? Matthew's saying there's, there's something in Isaiah I want you, I'm going to get to next. But what, we're, what we've just been talking about, that's actually a fulfillment of this Isaiah promise. It might seem at first like he's just talking about Jesus ordering them to be silent. That's definitely part of it. But that's not the only thing. Because when we look at the quote from Isaiah, we will see that this refers to all of verses 15 and 16. That, that uh, all, the, all the, the things Jesus is doing there, his, uh, his withdrawal from the synagogue, that many people are following him, that he's healing them, and that he's ordering them not to make him known, all of those together form this fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 42. So that's the, the first thing. That's what this refers to. But then the, the next question we need to ask is, uh, in what sense, what does it mean 
that Jesus fulfills what Isaiah said. What does it mean that Jesus fulfills Isaiah? Uh, I think it's, it's common, unfortunately, for us to think uh, when the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament, it's just kind of this one-to-one, like, uh, like, like Isaiah said Jesus would have a beard. Look, Jesus had a beard. Check that box. Uh, that's actually a real thing. Isaiah does talk about the Messiah having a beard. For your Bible trivia nights. There you go. You're welcome. Uh, but it's, it's not quite like that. Uh, the, the problem with that is that that treats the Old Testament like a bunch of boxes Jesus needs to check. Like, you did that, great job. Ooh, a little closer to being the Messiah. Check that box too. Uh, and, and it usually also it, it ignores, the, ignores the Old Testament context. So it's just like you find a verse, that sure sounds like Jesus. He did it, great. When the verse in context seems to be talking about Israel or about uh, God or about, uh, you know, David or something like that. Too often we, we just kind of pluck a quote out of the Old Testament uh, and then we, we see it fulfilled in the New Testament and we're like, oh, that's, that's all that means when there's, there's, there's more. So when Matthew talks about fulfillment, which he does a lot, it doesn't usually just mean this one-to-one, the Messiah will be like this, Look at Jesus. He's exactly like that. You get that sometimes. But it's, it's usually, when Matthew reads the Old Testament, he doesn't see Jesus just answering the promises. He sees Jesus embodying the heart of every Jewish hope. Of everything they could ever have dreamed of, every hope they ever had, every, like the, the ultimate uh, fulfillment of any promise that there could be is Jesus. He is the, the bigger and better Messiah than anyone expected. So the passage that he quote, Matthew quotes here, Isaiah 42, the Jews kind of already thought was fulfilled, or at least they, they, knew, they thought they knew what it was talking about. Uh, in in the, uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament, you may have heard us mention this in a theological quipping or a, a sermon before, it's called the Septuagint. That won't be on the test later, don't worry. Um, but it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was done between uh, the, the, the closing of the Old Testament and when Jesus showed up. So the intertestamental period, they translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. Uh, and in that version, which the Jewish people translated, they actually inserted in Isaiah 42, in uh, what we have here, where it says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. They inserted the words... Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. So they're saying, we know what this is talking about. This is talking about Israel. Jacob and Israel are interchangeable words. Remember, Jacob's name became Israel. So they're convinced this is about us. This is about God's servant, Israel. They were so sure that they put it in the translation. And I don't think we should be like, man, those dumb people in the intertestamental period didn't know what they were doing. Uh, because you actually read the context and it, it kind of does sound like it is Israel. And there is a sense in which Israel was meant to be God's servant, who were chosen by him, who uh, all the things it's saying here, that that was part of what he was calling them to. But it doesn't end there. Scholars will talk about this, this idea of, of double fulfillment. 
where a promise has, has multiple horizons of fulfillment. So there's a, a near horizon, and then there's a far horizon, which is Christ. Uh, I think we've seen this. If you've been coming to theological equipping class uh, before this at 9, yeah, 9 o'clock, um, that's been this whole semester, these biblical themes, seeing how there's this trajectory that is ultimately, that climaxes in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of every expectation in the Old Testament. Everything's building up to him, and then the New Testament flows from him. So these horizons of fulfillment have this, this close-up answer where, yes, Israel, that, that is what we're talking about. That is what Isaiah was talking about in chapter 42. But he's even more, in an even greater sense, promising this coming Messiah, Jesus, who will fulfill it far better, far greater, far grander than Israel ever could. There's a, a further horizon of fulfillment. That's what Matthew means when he uses the word fulfill. So, what does Jesus fulfill? Let's, let's just, I'm going to read the whole quote and then we're going to say a few things by way of introduction to this, uh, this quotation and then uh, we will walk through it line by line. Verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is Jesus, if you will, introductory email. This is the the big picture, the main things you must know about him. And there's, there's a lot we could say. First, first th three things by way of, of introduction. So first thing, this is the longest Old Testament quote in Matthew's gospel, which is a big deal. Matthew loves quoting the Old Testament. If you literally could count 10 different ways, whether it's a direct quotation or an allusion, no matter how you do it, Matthew quotes or refers to the Old Testament twice as much as any of his other fellow gospel authors, Mark, uh, Luke, and John. Matthew does it twice as much. He loves quoting the Old Testament. He loves pointing, how Jesus, pointing out how Jesus fulfills it. And this is the longest Old Testament quote Matthew gives us. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal for Matthew to do that. In fact, Matthew's so interested in this quote that it's very clear he gives us his own translation. So we will notice, I will in a little bit compare the original Isaiah quote and what Matthew says, and you'll see that's not quite the same. Matthew, it, it means the same thing, but Matthew's using certain words. He's trying to communicate a certain point. Uh, it's almost like if, uh, if, there, if you asked a musician what their favorite song is, and rather than like pulling out an iPhone to like play it for you, they pull out a guitar because they're like, you need to hear it how it's meant to be played. That's how Matthew feels about this quotation. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this is a quote from the first of Isaiah's four servant songs. So if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, uh, around Christmas time we talk about this a little more often, um, but, or actually also around Good Friday, uh, if you're familiar with Isaiah, there are four times in the book that he talks about this servant of the Lord. It's kind of this thread that runs throughout Isaiah, and there's these kind of songs about 
the servant. And it's, it's this big mystery, who is this servant? Because sometimes it, it seems like it's Israel. Sometimes it seems like it's God. Sometimes it was one time, it seems like it's Cyrus, king of Persia. And you're like, where'd that come from? Uh, and then sometimes it's just a mystery. We don't know who it's talking about. But the, the point is, is this. There's this storyline running through Isaiah anticipating this servant of the Lord. And Matthew right here is connecting Jesus to the very first time that servant is mentioned. So he's saying, that servant, I got him for you. He's right here. That's the second thing. The third thing, uh, before we dig into this quote, this is Hebrew poetry. This is Hebrew poetry. I'm going to try to restrain myself a little bit because there are several things I'm very nerdy about, Lord of the Rings being the chief of them. But Hebrew poetry is also one of them because it's so, so cool. Uh, And I would love you all to just bask in its glory. Um, But uh, the main thing to know about Hebrew poetry is it works in parallels. So it typically comes in sets of two lines. Sometimes there's three, and the third one will be kind of set aside. Uh, But it usually works in these two lines that together communicate a point. So you can't just read one line and be like, I get what it's saying, and then read the next line and be like, I get what it's saying. You need to say, okay, what is the, what is the movement from line one to line two? What is, what is the author doing kind of in the, the motion between these two lines? Together, what are they saying? What is the message that they together communicate? Uh, so again, it's usually two lines, but sometimes there's three uh, and if there's a third one, it, it kind of stands on its own and usually introduces some kind of, of twist. Uh, this passage has four uh, poetic pairs or uh, four parallelisms. The first three are two-liners, which are called bicola. That won't be on the test. The last is a three-liner, which is a tricolon, also not on the test. And then verse 21, we're just going to set aside entirely because it has literally no business being here whatsoever. I'll explain what I mean when we get there. All right, first parallel, which gives us the identity of Jesus. I don't know if the slides are going to be, yeah, okay, they are, they're they're good, that's great. They show you the poetic lines. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. The first thing we should notice there is that God is speaking. My beloved, my servant. This is God who is speaking, talking about his servant. And this being mapped onto Jesus shows us first that Jesus is God's servant, his, his representative. He's like an ambassador, a messenger who bears his king's seal and speaks on his authority. Jesus comes because God has sent him to do something. And it's intentional. God has chosen him. He's the man for the job. There's a sense of decidedness there. God has chosen him. He won't unchoose him. He's he's committed. He's decided. It's not changing. God has elected him for this work. He is God's elect. Now, that's a, a cold, unpleasant word for a lot of people, election. I'm not, not talking about politics, although that, that is unpleasant. Uh, but election, we think, uh, too often we think that that is a cold, lifeless, uh, kind of formalistic thing uh, to talk about God choosing, to talk about God's sovereign will. Uh, but the next line, which completes the parallel, uh, which together form the poetic verse, completely destroys that idea. My beloved 
with whom my soul is well pleased. My beloved, with whom my soul was well pleased. You may view election as a cold, formal, loveless idea, but that is completely the opposite of how God views it. Jesus is no impersonal cog in God's machine. God's choice doesn't flow from some utilitarian or lifeless desire. It flows from the fact that Jesus is the centerpiece of his affection. His soul is pleased. He calls him my beloved. He doesn't just say, I love you. Like right now, that's how I feel. I love you. You are, your identity is my beloved. That's who Jesus is. He is the beloved of the Father. So just there is a decidedness to God's election There's also a decidedness to God's affection. It doesn't change. His soul is well pleased in his son. That's the first parallel, and it shows us who Jesus is. He is this servant of God who has been chosen and sent on a task, and he is loved by his Father. Before we move on, brothers and sisters, I'd be remiss if I didn't simply point out that this is how God looks at you if you are in Christ. That language of in Christ is kind of a New Testament shorthand, a way of just saying a Christian. If you are in Christ, you are a Christian. And this is a truth that is so precious, so wonderful, so shocking that we would think it's blasphemy if the Bible wasn't so clear about it. But the truth is this. If you are in Christ, everything the Father says about his Son, he says about you. He calls you his servant. You represent him. You have a task. You bear his seal. You serve his mission. He has chosen you. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, there's that language, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The Father has chosen Jesus, the Son, and if you are in Christ, he has chosen, called, elected you. Not because you're great, not because you earned it, but because he simply delights to call you his beloved. That's who you are. You are his beloved. As Paul says in Romans 8, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christian, his soul is well pleased with you. He's well pleased. When you, when you, what do you think of, or what do you think goes through God's mind when he, when he looks at you? 
Is he frustrated? Like, oh, this guy just can't stop sinning. Is he disappointed? Like, she had so much potential, she just threw it away. Now, if you are in Christ, he looks at you and he says, my soul is perfectly well pleased. That's who Jesus is, and by God's grace, that's who you are, Christian, in him. The next parallel, the the second half of, of verse 18, then shows us what Jesus does. It says, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. There's two, two connected things there, right? So he bears God's spirit and he proclaims justice. And notice, notice the flow there, the flow between the poetic lines, right? So God's spirit comes on him and God's word, the pro- proclamation of justice, comes out from him. He has a message and the message is a message of justice to the Gentiles. Now it's important we spend a moment understanding what that Means There's a lot of ideas today about what constitutes justice, and it's, it's obviously a hot-button issue in our time. I won't dive into all that, but when the Bible talks about justice, in the most generic sense, I would say it just simply means what is right. What is right. So God, if you think about it like a, a, a board of wood, there is a grain to the universe. God has woven into the universe, into his creation, uh, his character. His just character. And justice goes along the grain. And injustice cuts against it. It denies God's character, which he has placed in his creation. It, 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 it denies his justice. So there, there's kind of three main arenas where we can talk about justice or that the Bible kind of pictures justice for us. The first and probably the most obvious one is what we would think of is legal justice. So it's justice in the courts. The bad guy gets punished. The good guy gets praised. That's justice. That's what's right. The second arena would be the the moral sphere. Obviously, there's overlap between all of these. I'm just kind of giving you three so you can kind of see the, the whole picture. But the moral sphere. So this is justice in the streets. So no unbalanced scales. No oppressing the poor. Honoring widows, honoring orphans, caring for immigrants. Those things are right. That's justice. That's doing what is right, what goes with the grain of God's character, which he has woven into his creation. And then thirdly, the Bible talks about justice in this kind of big cosmic sense. Cosmic justice. Justice everywhere. Uh, And that's when injustice can't happen. It includes the, the end of things like natural evil, hurricanes and, and tornadoes and uh, diseases. They, they simply cease and God is always praised everywhere as he should be. That's this picture of, of cosmic justice. Everything is right in every way, always. That's the, the ways the Bible talks about justice. So what does it mean that Jesus proclaims justice? Uh, Well, let me give you a a really helpful tidbit when you're reading your Bibles. Uh, Jesus is not like Michael Scott from The Office. Okay? Did you write that down? Jesus is not like Michael Scott from The Office. Very important hermeneutical, exegetical tip. There you go. That one's for free. Here's what I mean. Office fans, you might already know where I'm going with this, but 
Uh, when Michael has, uh, in one of the episodes, Michael's having financial problems. And he just walks into the room one day and says, I declare bankruptcy. And they all just kind of stare at him. Uh, and then Oscar walks into his office later and says, you know, you can't just say bankruptcy and expect things to happen. And Michael says, I didn't say it, I declared it. Uh, and, and Jesus is not like Michael Scott. Because when Jesus proclaims justice, he also achieves justice. He doesn't just say it and it's kind of like, oh, okay, cool, great idea, I like that. Let's do it that way, that's a good idea. This guy's got some, some, some good ideas about how justice works. No, no, he proclaims it, meaning he's bringing it. It's coming, he is achieving justice. That's how Jesus, that's, that's how Jesus, that's what it means for Jesus to proclaim justice. And that's what we've actually seen him doing throughout Matthew. So, for example, he, he's just been establishing what's right, right? We just saw it in our passage. Matthew says Jesus was healing them all. He healed them all. He, he's restoring what's right. It's not right for that man to have a withered hand. That that's, that's, goes against the way things should be. And Jesus restores his hand. Or the Pharisees, they, they put burdens on people. Those, those extra fences around the Sabbath that Jared talked about last week. And Jesus is tearing those down. Those are injustice. That's wrong. Jesus is establishing what is right. He restores justice. We've seen he, he restores moral justice. He, he cares for the outcasts. He heals the brokenhearted. By the end of Matthew he will restore legal justice where he will go to the cross and he will pay the debt that sin owes before a holy God. And one day, the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise is he will achieve cosmic justice where all the world will be right again. We're going to see more of that in our passage in a bit. But next we come to his character. We see his character in achieving that justice. Jesus does not just make justice happen uh, in a, a cold, lifeless, uh, forceful way. We see in verse uh, 19 and 20 how he does it. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. First thing, how does Jesus do what he came to do? He does it quietly. He does it quietly. He did not come to start arguments to own people with facts and logic. He did not come to be a first century celebrity. This is why he told the people not to make him known because most of his work is done in obscurity in what is unseen. That's why he spent his time off the beaten path away from the big cities for a lot of his life. His life was not about getting as famous as he could. It was about bringing justice, and for much of the time, that is hidden. That's often how his work looks today. When, when a, a sinner's dead heart becomes alive, it's not headline news. Like it's, it, you don't hear about it. Heaven's rejoicing, but we, it's, it's unseen. We don't often know. It doesn't make it any less amazing, but that's how it is. It's quiet. Maybe the second line there throws you off a little bit. It says, no one will hear his voice in the streets, which is kind of awkward because we have several chapters of him preaching. So we 
do hear his voice in the streets, presumably. Uh, I think the point there is just his, his humility and his relative obscurity. So uh, the word there for streets, it also can be translated uh, wide places. Uh, it's only used one other time in Matthew's gospel, and it's when it talks about the hypocrites in Matthew 6, praying in the streets so that everyone will see what they're doing. It's this kind of like boastful, hypocritical prayer, right? And Matthew's saying, Jesus is not like that. He doesn't do it like that. He's quiet. He goes out of the way, the unseen. That's how he works. He does his work quietly, which I just think, ironically, is one of the greatest testaments to the truth of the gospel. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Jesus went shockingly out of his way during his life to not make a big deal out of himself, and yet there are a couple hundred Christians in McKinney, Texas, gathering to read about the Bible and talk about him today. I mean, if you, if you look at a, a map, the, the two places we know that, that are furthest that Jesus went are Jerusalem and Capernaum, and they're like 100 miles apart. Texas is like over 800 miles wide. So it's like a tiny fraction of that. That's the only, that's as far as he ever got. And yet here we are, I did not do the math, some many thousands of miles away from where he was, and we are gathering to hear his word and to worship him today. This is a great testament to the truth of the gospel. Jesus did his work quietly, but it worked. He did it quietly. He also did it tenderly. Verse 20. This is our, our three-line parallel. It says, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Now, this is one of the more famous, most cherished descriptions of Christ's character, and, and rightly so. It just gives us this, this precious, precious glimpse of his tender heart, of that his hands are not, are not made to, to bruise and to hurt, but to heal and to restore and does that with, with two metaphors, which, which say similar things, kind of with different focuses. The first is about a reed, and the second is about a wick. And those are just cheap, common, unimportant things. Reeds would just be growing anywhere there's a river. It's just, it's just grass, basically. Wick, you know, candle wick, it just, it's cheap. It's easy to replace. Uh, but these are actually worse than that. It's a, a bruised reed smoldering wick. So the reed has, has no value. A bruised reed has less. It's just cast aside, irrelevant. Who cares? It's just a bruised reed. And the, the smoldering wick, I mean, cheap, it, wick is cheap to replace, and a smoldering wick is like less than helpful. It's like the light it gives is flickering and, and irritating. It's, I mean, it doesn't do what it's actually designed for. It's deficient. It's like if you have one of the old uh, iPhone cables before the lightning thing, it's just like this, is, this doesn't do the thing I need it for. It's just worthless. I don't need this. It's actually getting in my way. And these metaphors are meant to describe people, hurting people, broken people, wounded people, people who everyone else maybe has deemed worthless, unimportant, deficient, only good to be thrown away like bruised fruit. I don't need this. This is garbage. There are a lot of bruises in this world. 
and they come from a lot of places. We can simply be bruised by living in a broken world. The world is fallen. When, when man fell, all of creation fell with him. And so things like cancer and chronic pain and grief and disease just run rampant in our world and we get bruised. Bruises can come from the sins of others. Maybe you've been abused or neglected, hurt, trampled on, cast aside as worthless. And bruises can come from our own sins, our own mistakes, our own, our own selfish decisions that, that actually we hurt ourselves with. We've all got bruises and maybe your light Maybe it feels like your light is smoldering. It's just, just flickering about to go out. We've all got bruises. The question is, what do we do with them? Now, the cultural narrative that we inhabit will usually say something like this. It'll say, celebrate your bruises. Celebrate your bruises. So, uh, if you're bruised from your own sin, that suffering, sure, you made a bad decision. But at least you made the decision. At least you, it was a sign of your independence. Good for you. Even though it was a bad decision, it was your decision. Classic song for you, Frank Sinatra, My Way. Talks about regrets. I've got a few, but then again, too few to mention. At the end, he says, what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. Not to say the things he truly feels not the words of one who kneels. Listen to this. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. That's how we justify our self-inflicted bruises. At least it was my way. We celebrate that. We don't just celebrate the bruises we give ourselves. We celebrate the bruises we get from each other too, actually. The hardships in our lives, we often but at least what our culture tells us to do, is to celebrate them. This is captured very well by Tupac. He says this, he says, We wouldn't ask why a rose that grew from the concrete had damaged petals. Instead, we would all celebrate its tenacity. We would all love its will to reach the sun. Well, we are the roses, this is the concrete, these are my damaged petals. And there's something true in there. I don't want to just throw that out entirely. There's something beautiful about uh, light that comes from darkness, about something good that comes from pain. That, I don't want to deny that at all. That's biblical and good. But the problem is that the worldview in there, whether you listen to Tupac or not, you're, you're probably sympathetic to. Because if you're an American, this is, this, is, this is what we love. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You, you know what? The hard things only make you stronger. The rose is celebrated for its ability in itself to overcome. Its bruises bear witness to its tenacity. And so they, they should be celebrated because they mean I can do it. Now, if I can show you that from Frank Sinatra and Tupac, it must be embedded pretty deep in the American psyche. The problem is celebrating our bruises does nothing to heal them. 
It's true. Part, like again, part of what Tupac said is true. It's, it's beautiful when light comes from darkness. That's God's redemption. That's good. Celebrate that. But if we celebrate the bruises themselves, we actually miss out on healing, which is what we really need. We need what only a tender Savior can give. And this passage shows us exactly how Jesus is with wounded people. He's tender. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't quench the smoldering wick. He doesn't trample the tattered rose. He brings justice in every sense of the word. Whether it was from your own sin, he went to the cross to pay for the justice. Whether it's from the sins of others, he is making all things new. There is no one so weak, so broken, so common, so wounded that he does not offer a tender hand of healing and the promise of true, complete, full justice. As our passage says, he healed them all. He heals them all. That's our Jesus. And I I want you to see how, how different he is from the Pharisees who want to destroy they, they want to give the bruises. They see the man with the withered hand and they think about the rules they need to pile on top of him. They see him as worthless, as, as defective, which is sadly too often like us. When we see someone bruised, we just like to feel, feel superior. We feel better about ourselves and we get to deny our own bruises. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus isn't like that. I was just reading this past week in my Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 22, and it's just, I was just stunned by this great picture in Jesus' ancestor, King David, who shows us something of the character of Christ himself. So David's on the run. Saul's trying to destroy him, just like Jesus and the Pharisees. And it says this, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And then the the rest of the chapter tells this horrible story of Saul murdering a bunch of of priests. And one gets away, his his friends, his whole family has been killed. And he comes to David and, and David says to him, Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you will be in safekeeping. That's how Jesus is with the weak, with the hurting, with the broken. He gives them safekeeping. We're all all bruised and distressed in debt like that. And we need to learn not to celebrate the bruises as marks of our independence or our tenacity. We need to hear what the bruises are saying to us. Because they're saying we need a tender, healing Savior. Because what we don't realize, what we miss, is there's profound grace in knowing you're bruised. There's profound grace in that. Because your bruises might be the only thing that help you see how much you need this Savior. Richard Sibbs, who wrote a great book 
called The Bruised Reed, which is just a reflection on this verse. If you want to dive in deep, get that book, uh, Richard Sibbs, S-I-B-B-E-S, book called The Bruised Reed. He says this, this bruising makes us set a high price upon Christ. Then the gospel becomes the gospel indeed. For what makes many so cold and barren, but that bruising for sin never endeared God's grace to them. He's saying bruises can do one of two things. They can make you run from God. They can make, they can make you run away. How can, how, can I, he, how can I worship a God who let this happen? Or they can make you run to him. See, he's the only one who can heal. The only one who's bringing ultimate, perfect justice. You may, you may feel like damaged goods. But the damaged goods are the ones Jesus came for. And only he has hands tender enough to hold you. We're still not through the whole verse. We'll come to the third line now, which... Uh, which introduces a couple surprises. I mentioned when there's a third line in Hebrew poetry, it, it, it usually is a twist, a surprise. And Matthew actually has, has two. He's, he's more, than, more than just the normal surprise of a third line to set off the, the poetic rhythm. He says, until he brings justice to victory. Now, I said there's, there's two surprises there because Matthew is, uh, his translation is very unique. When we, when we compare the two, I, yeah, we have it on the, the screen there for you. If you compare what Isaiah said and what Matthew said, you, you notice a few differences. So Isaiah, original line, said, he, this servant of the Lord, will faithfully bring forth justice. But Matthew says, until he brings justice to victory. Now those pretty much mean the same Thing Isaiah is actually probably a little easier to understand. He's saying he'll do it. Justice is going to happen. He's going to be faithful about it. He's going to do it. It's going to be perfect. Faithfully bring forth justice. Justice will be established in the whole world. But Matthew, in his translation, is, is emphasizing things that, that we miss if, uh, if, we don't, if we just look at what Isaiah says. So first, the first surprise, he starts with the word until. Until. He's putting a timestamp, an expectation, a, a hope ahead. He, he, he's putting a timestamp on the bruised reed and the smoldering wick, saying, there, there is an until. Jesus is tender with you now, but one day there won't be bruised reeds and there won't be smoldering wicks. There is an until. And the second surprise, instead of saying he'll faithfully bring justice, Matthew says, I love this, he'll bring justice to victory. He'll bring justice to victory. Why does he use that word to translate it? Because he, he doesn't, yes, he will do it faithfully, but it's, it's, it's more than that. You need to understand there is a conquest here. Justice will win. Injustice has reigned. All the bruises, all the smoldering wicks of the world, yes, injustice is everywhere. And it will be conquered. By Christ, justice will win. Which is why Matthew inserts verse 21, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now I said earlier, this verse doesn't have any business being here. 
It does not fit in any sense of the word. Why? Well, one, it's not from Isaiah 42. It's not from Isaiah 42. You could make an argument that the next few verses in Isaiah kind of make it seem like that, but it's just, it's not anywhere near enough to be called a translation. Actually, it's a quote from Isaiah chapter 11, where we get this glorious picture of this world where perfect justice reigns, where the wolves and lambs eat together, where children play over holes with snakes in them, where uh, lions and lambs lay down together, where the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. It is this picture of perfect, beautiful, complete justice. It's that picture of the until, the future hope when justice wins, when the Gentiles, the nations of the world, will find the object of their hope. And Christ returns. It is a good day because that is the day justice will win. But here's the thing. Justice is only good news for the righteous. It's only good news for the righteous. Justice is bad news for the wicked. For the wicked, those who have done injustice, the victory of justice is terrifying. I shared this story a few months ago in theological equipping class, but it captures this idea very well. I have a a pastor friend who was counseling a woman who had been horribly abused. Uh, By God's grace, she'd seen growth uh, and... uh, The Lord had been near and kind and tender with her in her healing, but she was still struggling a lot. She was having a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of, yeah, just, yeah, terror at the world of of dissatisfaction with where she was. And part of the reason for that is they never caught the men who had abused her. And my pastor friend uh, encouraged her to find a verse in the Bible or a passage that brought her comfort and to to memorize it and to to just fill her mind with its truth. And he said, you know, whatever passage you like, just come back next week and let me know. And she came back a week later and said, I found my passage. I, I I I know what I want to reflect on when I'm scared, when I'm anxious, when it feels like, Uh, everything will always be in complete disrepair. Everything will always be falling apart. It's that passage at the end of Revelation where Jesus comes back and pours out his wrath on the wicked. When the sword from his mouth destroys all evildoers. She said, "I I want that in my mind because it tells me they don't get away with it. Justice will win. God never says, vengeance is wrong. God says, vengeance is mine. And he is bringing perfect, true, complete justice. The question for us is, will that day be a good day for us? Will that day, when Christ returns, will it be good news for us? 
I mentioned our, our text is pulled from Isaiah 42, the first of the four servant songs in Isaiah. Well, the final servant song, Isaiah 53. We learn that this servant who is tender with the bruised reed will himself be bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Jesus became the bruised reed for us. He became the quenched wick for us so that we can look forward to that day of perfect justice knowing we are clothed in his righteousness, that all our sins have been paid for, and we can look to that day in hope. Let's pray. Jesus, you are a good Savior. You are so good. Even our, our minds cannot comprehend the beauty of your goodness, your tenderness. God, my, my words can't capture your tenderness, your faithfulness, your victory over sin in every way. And we pray you would set our eyes on the day of hope, the day when you return and we see you in your glory and you set all things right. And we thank you that you did not make that day come before you first went to the cross to save us. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.